Welcome to By the Bywater, a podcast on the Megaphonic Network. I'm Ned Raggett. I'm Oriana Schwint. I'm Jared Pekachek. And we're here to talk about all things J.R.R. Tolkien. His work, his inspirations and impact, creative interpretations in other media, languages, lore, ripoffs, parodies, anything we think is interesting. Thanks for joining us. And hey, everybody, thanks for joining us for the first episode of By the Bywater. We really appreciate it. Uh, it is, it's been a, a few months coming. We've been through our, our ups and downs in uh, various ways. Uh, let's just say that the three of us have been very busy these past few weeks with travel and doing things. In fact, I was just in New York for reasons I'll get into soon enough. And I was just in Seattle. And that's respectively where Oriana and Jared live. But I wasn't able to meet up with them. Do things that just happen. So we tried to make it work. What was going to happen? Oriana, what were you doing? Start with you. I feel so bad. I really, really wanted to meet with you. Uh, and but I woke up the morning of and was feeling a little. I was feeling under the weather. And the re like normally I would have powered through though, but because. Um, in like within a week, I think, or I guess maybe a little more than a week, I was going to be traveling internationally. I was very like, no, I can't be sick. I can't have this happen because now that I'm old in my thirties, like anytime I get a cold or something, it lasts forever. And I was like, no, I can't have this happen. I need to just stay in bed. And I like was having a freak out, but I still felt really awful. Um, and I'm sad that we didn't actually get to meet in person, which was well, one day it will happen i'm sure and meantime the saddle trip was prompted by my presenting totally separate thing over at the pop conference there and i was hoping hey jared's in seattle can meet him but i couldn't because jared you were at where england Woo! and france yeah yeah <laughs> and i'm still a little jet lagged so this was gonna be fun I feel your pain. I'm still, I'm like, I'm recovering better than I anticipated. I was in Finland. Uh, so it was a fun seven hour, uh, time difference that like the last few nights I've been like, Oh God. But now I have, now I have a, a copy of the Hobbit in Finnish, uh, which is really cool. Illustrated by Tove Janssen, uh, who created the Moomins. I'm very, I love it. It's so cool. And uh, Jared, when you were in France, you obviously, as we all saw, had a chance to visit Notre Dame before the horrible disaster that happened there. Yep. Um, so I'm both envious and sad for you because, man, that must be a conflict of emotions right there. Yeah, it was like we were there on Wednesday and then what, like on Sunday or something, I checked Twitter and was like, wait, <laughs> it's what? <laughs> it's burning down? <laughs> so, yeah. And I was still in France at that point. So I was just, yeah, it was. It was rough. Yeah. Yeah, that's not like the end of a trip that you kind of want. Not really. I mean, it's bad on its own. But on a happier note, uh, where did you, I mean, I saw various photos as you were going around. Where did, where did you end up going around in England to, specifically? Um, we were mostly in London, so went to a lot of museums. Um, ended up going up to Barrack-upon-Tweed for a couple days. Just this yeah. little town near the Scottish border. Yeah, um, I love that place. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, almost went to Oxford, home of Tolkien, um, but we did not because that would have been a big trip out of our way. More money, you know. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. I love London. It was fine. Quite a time to be there, too, given all its uh, current uh, doings with the government there, but that would sidetrack us into a completely other discussion. <laughs> <laughs> what would Tolkien think about Yes! <laughs> 
I will say that I have been to Oxford a couple of times myself, uh, and uh, including once in 1992, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and uh, it's worth a visit, but yeah, it's the type of thing that uh, it's kind of out of your way if you're not doing anything else specifically beyond that and all the rest of it. Not that he can't reach it quickly from London, but yeah. So in any event, uh, so everyone, that's what we've been doing. <laughs> Give you an idea of what's been going on. But uh, now that we're all settled here and finally settled in with this, so to explain a little bit more about what we're here for with this podcast, because there are other Tolkien podcasts out there, and we just are glad to join their number. Uh, but the idea here is sort of where we're coming from can best be described as this. Um, we are, I don't want to call us, you know, feckless centrists, shall we say, but we're kind of square in the middle in terms of uh, where we're, uh, how we approach Tolkien and how we engage with them and where we would sort of rank ourselves as as experts, let's say. Um, we are not neophytes. This is not the first, we've not just suddenly encountered him or anything like that. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. In fact, if you're listening and you've never really uh, read much or engagement with Tolkien, but you're listening in regardless, welcome. We're glad to have you aboard. And we hope that what we uh, share is something that piques your interest further. But the flip side, we're not scholars either. We're not like regularly published, you know, people hold doctorates, or even just people who are very, very well established within the realm of sort of the higher end of fandom, which has been the case for a number of people over the years and things like that. So we wouldn't be able to quote chapter and verse of every last little thing. Uh, instead, we would describe ourselves as enthusiasts would be the best way to put it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more later about how we engaged with Tolkien on uh, the first time and how we regard it. But uh, is there anything that you guys would like to add to that sort of description, thoughts to keep in mind before we plunge into things? Yeah, I personally have always, got, like, I almost don't, I, I, for a long time, I was very much, like, afraid to delve deeper, like, extra textually with, with Tolkien, because you, you're like, oh, God, what am I going to find? Like, some sort of, like, race, like, all, like, m way more racism than I'm anticipating, or all this other stuff. So for a long time, I just kind of kept to the texts and not even, you know, Father Giles of Ham and, and, and whatnot, just very specifically kept myself to the Hobbit and the Silmarillion, uh, and the Lord of the Rings, you know, and their intros and appendices, uh, very afraid to, to, at what I would find if I, if I strayed further beyond those borders. So this is, this has been good for me to sort of get me out of my comfort zone. Great. And Jared? No, the description sounds accurate to me. I mean, a fan, but not like sitting here going, well, if you look on page 74 of <laughs> the Book of Lost Tales number two, then you'll find that, you know, whatever, some secret Valar, or, I don't know, just a fan. Sometimes that's more than enough. So, uh, and so to explain the format, too, before we plunge into things, the heart of each episode will be a subject of discussion that will be led in rotation by each one of the three of us over time. I'm doing it for this first episode, the next episode, Oriana will lead it, and then to Jared in the third, and then it'll cycle back and it'll go from there. And that, again, will be sort of the core of each episode. And the idea is, as we talked about in the intro, it can be about anything with Tolkien. It can be very specific and focused. It can be a very broad topic. It might not even necessarily be about him specifically, as it is, uh, interpretations of his work, people who looked at it in different ways, whether it's uh, not merely critical, but also artistic interpretations. Of course, we all know about the many now at this point mass media interpretations that have come over time. 
and you know ripoffs, parodies, as mentioned, things like this. There are many different ways to engage with Tolkien's impact and legacy. Uh, and I will emphasize one other thing that we all agreed that we were not going to do. We are not marching through the books. We are not doing a <laughs> chapter by chapter read that didn't appeal to any of us, as I'm sure we'll all agree. Nope. Nope. No. No, thanks. <laughs> we're going to we'll hop around, bop around, and that'll be much more fun and interesting, we think. It may not be what you might want out of uh, this particular podcast, but there are other podcasts that do just that and do a fine job. So by all means, search out those if you like. Uh, we're just going to let it sort of go on this monthly basis as things occur to us. So more on our first topic in a little bit, but now we'll go into the other section that we'll always provide, and that is, as things come up, just uh, general news in the world of Tolkien and Tolkien interpretations, since, of course, you know, just about everything that Tolkien has done has now been published one way or another pretty thoroughly. So, but there'll be, you know, further collections, interpretations, things like that. But there's been a lot going on in recent months uh, in huge amounts. And so we'll just lead on in. And here is for this month, April of 2019, here is some of the current news. So after a, over a year with no news, we now know more about Amazon's Prime Video Tolkien adaptation, uh, thanks to a series of posts on their official Twitter account for the project, at LOTR on Prime, in February and March. The setting will officially be the Second Age, thousands of years before the events of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Um, no more specific details have surfaced thus far. And with that in mind, uh, I'm sure, Ariana, you have some thoughts since you had quite a few of them when the first uh, confirmations <laughs> came to, through. I'm trying to remember. I should have, I should have like called up my, my tweets from, from when this was revealed. Um, I think this is really interesting. I actually am super on board with this because there had been rumors before that uh, the, this particular series was going to like go through like the events just prior to Lord of the Rings and through Lord of the Rings from, but set it primarily from Aragorn's perspective. And I was like, Oh, that kind of sucks. Um, and so this is much more interesting to me. There's a lot of cool stuff in the second age that, that, you know, that, I mean, the fall of Numenor is one of the more interesting, um, stories to me i i love it so much i don't know what do you guys think no that's a it's a great um not little known part of the story exactly because it's a huge part of the backstory of lord of the Rings. but like there's so much potential there with um you know sauron coming and corrupting the island and all that and getting to see things besides like the forging of the rings of power or whatever the elves are up to i'm really excited for that yeah, that seems like the most, the least interesting, like the forging of the ring is honestly the least interesting thing about the second age to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes me a heathen. No, no, I totally get it. <laughs> like, what what are they supposed to show? Like, Right? <laughs> <laughs> we covered that in the prologue to Lord of the Rings movie. We don't need to see it. I mean, the thing to my mind, and this is something where I'm going to have to dig into uh, the unfinished tales here, because uh, that's where most of the detail that m is more or less canonical has surfaced regarding this period, uh, is that uh, is that there's no one story of exactly how Sauron comes to the elves and says, you know, hey, I'm from the Valar, I have this idea, and things like that. There's 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 variance, and so by default. This series, um, this uh, the series will have to sort of pick a path or figure out exactly how to approach that. And I should also note that uh, one thing that uh, was very 
intriguing about the revelation about it being the second age, which they very clearly stated on their uh, on the uh, on the Twitter account, as mentioned there, is that uh, it, of course, was accompanied by a series of maps that uh, eventually show that it was supposed to, in fact, be the second age. It shows the island of Numenor. It uh, has the older names for a lot of things. Uh, various you know, kingdoms and things familiar from Lord of the Rings are not there at all. And the place names, the emphases, uh, are very much on the old, uh, what's meant to be the older Elvish, uh, you know, kingdom or realm or region of Eregion uh, near uh, Moria, and that's kind of what seems to make everyone think. And I think we're all in agreement here. That's probably why the series will focus on that as a starting point because it's kind of a logical one. It's like, okay, here's where the rings came from, but here's everything else because there is so much that's going on with that. Right. Here's the greater historical context. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's that's exactly very intriguing. Yeah. I I don't know that I don't know much more to add to that. But Oriana, you had some thoughts. Just having not, you can say more about this in terms of what you've done in terms of working with TV, but also just working with you know TV you know pitch pitch rooms and uh, script rooms and things like that. You had some initial thoughts about how they're sort of gearing up about that, if I remember right. But uh, was there anything else you wanted to add to that? Or? Hmm. I mean, they are still putting their writer's room together, I know. Uh, it is interesting that everything is very under lock and key. And I think this is, this is an interesting approach that I think started with Game of Thrones, the secrecy surrounding, uh, you know, supposedly the, the writer, the Lord of the Rings writer's room is like literally there's a handprint lock or something, you know, on, on the door, which seems a bit excessive, frankly, because there's no, you can't spoil this. Like, <laughs> honest, unless you are the kind of person who considers even the fact uh, that, you know, we know it's supposed to be a, a take place in the second age. I don't consider that a spoiler at all. I, I like none of that takes away your enjoyment of the show. I hope not. That's that's crazy to me. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I had done a piece for Vox, which is finally out in the world. I you know, it's I submitted it in January, and it was just published a week ago. Um, about uh, creating languages for TV and film. And I had talked with uh, uh, David J. Peterson, who did the the Game of Thrones languages. And, uh, you know, I had asked Amazon if they, if I could talk with the executive producers of the Lord of the Rings series, uh, you know, uh, to see where their head was at. Like, are they going to be using, you know, are they going to be asking someone to flesh out the Numenorean language? Uh, I, I, I've never said it out loud, but let's try it. Adunaic? Um, you know, are they, are they, how are they thinking about using Elvish? Because they, there are some of the Noldor still kicking around. So maybe there's some Quenya to be, to be spoken. Maybe it's all Sindarin. Um, but, uh, they were like, yeah, they're not there yet. Like <laughs> they're still putting a bunch of other stuff together. That's still, I was like, ah, okay, I'll check back in with you guys later. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, the only other thing I've seen in terms of just a sheer unsourced rumor, for lack of a better term, uh, was the fact that I uh, saw something along the lines of uh, someone a claim somewhere that Edinburgh was being thought of as an initial filming location. Uh, but I'm like, okay, so that could mean anything. I, I assume they mean more around Edinburgh than in Edinburgh itself, but uh, but we'll see about that. But that would be an interesting change from uh, where we've seen this thing this whole time, which of course has been. Uh, uh, words, they'll come to me. 
which of course uh, will be uh, different from New Zealand, but we'll see how that all. Um, okay, uh, with that in mind, uh, moving on to the next uh, news spot. So, Ariana, take it yeah. away. Yeah, well, yeah, we've got, like, it's a nice sort of um, chronological progression here, because coming up in May, we've got the Tolkien biopics release, which is May 3rd in the UK and Finland, as I discovered last week in, in Helsinki, and May 10th here in the States. Uh, it is called Tolkien. And Nicholas Holt is is the dude himself, you know, Mr. Beast from X-Men, and Lily Collins is his lovely wife and inspiration for Luthien Tenuviel, um, Edith Bratt, uh, and uh, Cole Meany is, is in it as uh, Tolkien's guardian, Fra- Father Francis Morgan, who... You probably know Cole Meany from, like, everything ever. He's a, such a, hey, it's that guy. But, like, Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. Yeah. <laughs> and what's, you know, appropriately, because of Tolkien's love of Finnish, um, the, the movie it comes from Finnish director Dome uh, Karukoski. Um, and as a, as a side note, it's it's going to be playing at the Montclair Film Festival on May 7th with a live Q&A afterwards with Holt and Collins, and the moderator is, you know, Tolkien nerd supreme Stephen Colbert. Uh, and since it's, you know, just a path train away, I will be going to that. So I'll, I'll let y'all know how that goes. Are you guys, you can technically, like, see the Q&A if you go to, like, a, uh, there are movie theaters that are live streaming it, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to look to see uh, if uh, if something around here in San Francisco would be uh, showcasing that. Uh, I need to double check the listings. Uh, so far, nothing at the Alamo Draft House, but it could easily be one of the other spots around here that maybe does something through, whether it's Fathom Events or however they're doing that. Um, I know one thing we were all thinking about was that when we were looking at the trailers, or our reactions were kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were all just I, th- I think I think our concern at the time was that it would sort of maybe hit obvious biopic beats. But also, I think the other thing, too, is based on the trailers, which are worth watching. So you can at least see what's you know what what it's going to be like is the is, at least initially is that, uh, you know, how overdetermined is it going to be saying that everything from uh, that followed in his writing was specifically tied into World War One. It obviously is central to uh, to uh, his writing, the, where the initial development of his mythology took a very sharp turn based on his experiences. But uh, it's it's it would be overly reductive to uh, say that you know Lord of the Rings was you know founded there when that was very much not the case. That right. was right. He saw some guy in a gas mask, and it was and was like, oh, it's Sauron. <laughs> no, not a thing. Can we please not do that? He saw a bomb and was like, oh, Balrog. Like I. <laughs> Yeah, that's like all biopics are bad. Uh, there is no such thing as a good biopic, and I'm not like I. I hope this is really good. I hope I enjoy it. I have, you know, I. I don't want to say I'm going into this expecting it to be bad because that's a terrible way to watch movies. Um, but you know, we'll see. Like I, I really do hope it's good and and enjoy, or at least just an enjoyable experience. So, and I remember mentioning this uh, a couple of months ago. But the thing that intrigues me most about uh, Karakowski as the director 
was that his previous film to this, I believe it was just previous to this, um, was also a biopic and was about someone from Finland, but someone more utterly unlike Tolkien, I can't even imagine. He was uh, he did a biopic on the very famed um, uh, gay erotic illustrator Tom of Finland, and I'm going to have to watch that one just to, as a contrast to this one because I'm like, okay, is there a stylistic through line or has he taken completely different approaches to this? Because wow, <laughs> yeah, that'll be that'll be good grist for uh, you know a future episode, maybe even the next episode. Uh, Indeed, yeah. yeah. So. But that'll be that'll be coming up. So uh, just to uh, wrap up uh, news here for the moment, one final thing to note: uh, next month, uh, when the Tolkien uh, biopic comes out, is also the conclusion of the run of the Tolkien exhibition at the Morgan Library in Manhattan. This is the only American stop for this exhibition, which initially began in Oxford last year. It showcases a variety of Tolkien's original art and drawings, as well as other memorabilia from his life and work. Oriana and I had a chance to see it separately in March, as was referred to a bit earlier. We'll talk about it more in a second. Uh, tickets have to be purchased at the library itself, and the final day of the exhibition is May 12th. So by the time this episode appears, there's really not much time to go and see it. So if you were thinking about it, now is kind of the time. So just get ready for that. But uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, Oriana went and saw it uh, one time, and I flew out. I specifically flew out to see it quite freely and frankly, and I'm very glad I did. Uh, and I have my own thoughts on it. But, uh, Oriana, do you want to sort of kick it off? What did you think of it uh, with your visit? Yeah, it was really interesting. So I went on a free Friday. Uh, so the Morgan does this lovely thing where Friday nights are free from 7 to 9 p.m., uh, and I would, I, I would have paid the $20 admission to, to see this, but I was like, well, I am free. Um, so I went and saw it and, you know, it was about an hour wait, uh, in a line. Um, Ned, you can tell me, I, I'm always intrigued to see like how many people were, I was, I was surprised at how many people were in, the, I, I don't know. I had, I just had this weird thing like, oh, well, I'm like the only person in New York who's super into this sort of thing, um, which is dumb, but it did. I was like, oh, wow, there's like a, uh, can we curse? Are we cursing? Um, okay. As, as you choose. <laughs> okay. There's just, there was just a shit ton of people there. <laughs> uh, there were just a shit ton of people there, which was really cool to see. And that was like, it was, it was mildly irritating to have to, you know, queue up and, and for like literally every part of, of the exhibition. Um, but it was cool to experience it with such a large group of people. Um, and I, like I had seen, uh, you know, photos of, of his drawings and whatnot, but nothing quite prepared me. I was much more emotional than I thought I would be, uh, seeing, the the origins of 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 all this stuff and the the drawings in particular were just astoundingly beautiful in person and they did a cool thing where they blew up uh some of the pieces and they reminded me a lot of um i mean retroactively i was reminded of a lot of art i saw in finland uh it's very similar colors and styles uh and it was just it really yeah it, it kind of I got a little emotional and that was, that was very cool. It was a cool experience. Did you, Ned, also kind of get a little 
Was was it dusty in the room? <laughs> <laughs> a little verklempt. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very very good way of putting it. I agree. It was it was certainly crowded uh, as well for me. I went on a it was a Saturday, and perhaps by default it was going to be more crowded anyway. But uh, yeah, you you could tell the people who were the fans who were there for that. Yeah. Um. Uh, our my crew who I ended up going with. Uh, a quick acknowledgement to my uh, friends Kate Sturski and Michaela Drapes. How you doing? Uh, the three of us uh, ended up uh, going together. We arrived at different times, so on, our tickets were a little staggered. We ended up sort of grouping together, walking around the, the library itself, which is really fascinating on its own right, so I'm very glad we did that. Yeah. And the exhibition, very, very crowded. It did take some time. It's in a very compact setup that if you were there just sort of casually going through it, it would be just very easy to go through and probably see it in about, Let's say half an hour, but we were close to an hour and a half, if not more. It was just a very slow progression. And because the his art is by default very small, it's like sheets of paper is what it is. He, we're not talking big canvases or anything like that. Even his watercolors are not not really huge. Um, there's just a crush to get around them. I agree with you that actually seeing some of these drawings, especially ones that you've seen reproduced so many times, it's like, there it is. It really does. It's 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 almost uncanny valley in a weird way. It's like no, this is it. <laughs> you know these things that you've seen so often. Uh, it's it's extremely vivid. And uh, to my mind, the things that were most interesting. And I will just start, uh, add at this point that uh, even if you don't get a chance to see the exhibition, there is, there are two excellent collections drawing on the archive, drawing on this particular uh, exhibition. That are out there. There's a shorter volume and then a very, very big volume uh, hardback, which, uh, yes, I got, um, <laughs> which is called Tolkien Maker of Middle Earth, which I highly recommend that reproduces everything that's in the collection. So you do have a chance to see it that way. Um, were the watercolors that he did just before Middle Earth started to take shape? Uh, because it's like he's he's clearly playing around with these ideas, these visual significances that uh, that have a you know resonant meaning for him drawing on whatever he's drawing on in particular as a young man and it's 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 not like these landscapes were looking for a narrative to contain them necessarily but it's 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 what is the word it's just sort of like you know these are the deeper waters from yeah. which things grow and it's, it's the and wellspring it's, yeah 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 and i was thinking back to when i would have been his age and i'm like you know i can't claim I'm anything near as creative as Middle Earth or anything like that. But I'm also thinking about, okay, where was I at and what was I trying to express or how was my worldview starting to come together? And I found that remarkably affecting uh, in its own way. So especially since, of course, he didn't know, nobody did, what was on the verge of reshaping his life with, again, uh, World War One about to happen. So, But uh, yes, a very, a very moving experience, uh, not least because... Um, it is a way to bring together for this one time uh, images from the collection at Marquette University, where for those who just as explanation for people, Marquette University in Wisconsin is where the uh, manuscripts for The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings have been for many years. Uh, they were acquired uh, by the I believe chief librarian there at the time who kind of realized back in the early 60s, hey, this is amazing <laughs> and was able to, and yeah, that, that was a smart call and we'll have a little more Mar Marquette later. Uh, so uh, that's where the uh, manuscripts are. And then the rest of the Tolkien family papers are pretty much in England at the Bodleian and Oxford or in private collections. So this is a way to bring everything together for essentially this one time. And also for that reason alone, it was just, you know, just remarkable. You'll never, never quite get that chance again, but a wonderful time. Go if you can pick up the books. If you can anything more to add to that, Oriana? 
there was one detail that I really loved and did not expect, and that was there there are letters from his mother in the in this exhibition, and I was astonished to see how closely her handwriting resembles the Tanguar script. Yes. Yes. That was, I, I don't know if that was just a thing that everyone knew and I had missed somehow, but I was like, Oh, Whoa, that's, that's so interesting to me. Like, you know, a way for, you know, not only his connection to her to, to live on after it was, uh, you know, so untimely cut, but, you know, now it lives on in the greater world. It lives on on my arm where I have Quenya tattoos, uh, which is pretty. The world is strange, you know? Mm hmm. It is. And yeah, you're right. I was we were thinking that, too. Looking at that, we're just the the sheer beauty and precision of her handwriting. Yeah, my handwriting is awful. I I was like, I need to do something about this. Like, it was astonishing. I do have to say, um, my handwriting is actually indirectly inspired by hers. No. um, Yeah. No, so when I was uh, a teenager, I got a book from the library of... um, I think the letters of Tolkien and there was a reproduction of either one of her letters or one of his letters and his handwriting was influenced by her. And I saw that and I was like, yes, this is how I want to write. That is so cool. And now I write the way I do. So that's so lovely. Yeah, that's really great. That's that's these are the type of unexpected stories we hope to bring people <laughs> and all that. So if you're listening, so who you never know where you're going to get. So, uh, but, uh, wonderful. And that kind of wraps it up for the news this time. So we will now move on, uh, to talking about the main discussion topic. So, uh, to explain to folks again, how we're doing this, uh, we, everyone it will, we will all have a chance every three months to bring up something to talk about. And being as the guy who came up with this whole thing, I decided to uh, arrogate the role of the first discussion topic for myself. But also because we've been, you know, talking about our, you know, fandom and resonances and all that, it being the first episode, it just made sense to just talk about how we ourselves individually discovered Tolkien and what has been the core of his appeal from that point, whenever we first, you know, got a sense of his art and work until now. And so with that, here is kind of my short version of the story. And believe me, it could be a lot longer. So my story is probably a fairly common one for people around my age. I was born in 1971, and when I was six, the animated Rankin-Bass version of The Hobbit was broadcast on NBC in November 1977. I'm pretty positive I hadn't read the book at that point, though it's entirely possible my mom might have read her copy to me. I should ask. While I don't remember the viewing itself as clearly as I would like, I must have really liked it, because by at least a year or two later, I had both the double vinyl recording of the film's full soundtrack, as well as the paperback edition featuring both concept art and finished cells from the production. I kinda sorta knew about Ralph Bakshi's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings the following year, but I didn't see it for a couple of years, though I do remember seeing Rankin-Bass's Return of the King adaptation when it was first broadcast in 1980. After a failed attempt to start with reading the actual Return of the King soon after that, not the best starting point, I have to say, I finally read The Lord of the Rings itself from the beginning, properly, over Christmas 1983, when I was 12, and that was it. I was fully gone into fandom, and I haven't looked back. Ultimately, I think the thing that attracts me the most is still a sense of a lived-in place. When Tolkien wrote and spoke about the term sub-creation, 
reflecting both his deeply felt theology as well as his sense of what he was doing as an author, it really underpins the idea that there's already been something there to start with, that people aren't moving in an anonymous location or somewhere generic. That later years can show me the limits of this is helpful as well. He was a product of his time and place, and he projected a sense of relative unchangingness across millennia that sometimes beggars belief. Then again, there have been civilizations in human history that can draw such deep continuity in turn, where the radical changes we are used to in these decades are just small moments in time. But the lived-in place, whether Bag End or the wreckage of lost kingdoms, mountains from time immemorial, or recent construction or destruction, underscores so much of Tolkien, and the characters all find themselves grappling with that, consciously or not. That it's that is very uh, adorable. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the the Rankin Bass. I remember seeing. I had I had read the books already, and but remembers somehow seeing. I can't remember if it was the Rankin Bass or Ralph Bakshi. But it was definitely, it was a very disturbing cartoon. And I was like, no, what is this? <laughs> like, the thing about the Rankin Bass in particular that uh, I found interesting in much later years is I remember thinking about this at some point when I did a rewatch of The Hobbit, um, of that version of The Hobbit, uh, you know, maybe when I was a late teenager or something like that. And I caught a lot of the names and the animation credits and I realized, oh, most of the credits here are Japanese, and yeah. uh, and hmm. it was and it kind of explains things because Rankin Bass's work was kind of more well known as stop motion. Where they're the folks uh, behind you know the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer yep. that's rerun every Christmas and yeah. eight million other things like that. Uh, and what they had done is they had worked on the design. The Rankin Bass team, admittedly, I forget which one of the two uh, is uh, one. One is more the uh, the writer and the sort of created the songs and so forth. The other one was more the, the animator. Um, but uh, they created designs, which the, which this Japanese team did. Here's something really interesting that I only re- relatively recently learned about. It was a studio, an established studio in uh, animation studio in Japan doing that in the seventies called Topcraft. What's interesting about this team, Topcraft is that there was a guy who was working for Topcraft who didn't work on this project, but a couple years later, when Topcraft uh, had a bankruptcy issue or went under, this guy stepped to the fore and sort of reorganized it and then renamed it and launched it. And that's how Ayo Miyazaki founded Studio Ghibli. No! Huh. No lie. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, no, that what you're seeing is the work of a lot of the core people who would eventually found uh, uh, Studio Ghibli. Now, Miyazaki, as I mentioned, did not work on the Rankin-Bass adaptations. However, his very uh, close compatriot, uh, I am hoping getting the name right, I'm going to apologize, I believe Isao Takahita, uh, who was sort of the other main guy, you could say, of Ghibli, uh, he did work on it extensively. Whoa. So there is a direct through line. And I've always found it remarkable as well that that was probably my first experience, however indirect, of Japanese animation. Let's put it that way. Um, when I was six, because again, it's very vivid. It's unique. It does not look like Disney. <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't look like Hanna-Barbera. It is, you know, it's a remarkable fusion combination. And over time, it's like, wow, that's really an interesting flashpoint to be experienced, to, to, to get an experience of both Tolkien and of Japanese yeah. animation in one package. It's, it's a really remarkable uh, cultural combination as a result. And I, I could say more about The Hobbit, but I don't want to, that, that version of it, but I don't want to get too sidetracked. Um, something else that sort of occurs to me as well that uh, after I had written what I had just uh, read there, 
was that um, I sort of see myself, for lack of a better term, as sort of in a third wave of Tolkien fandom. And here's how I'll sort of very casually sort of uh, divide it out. If the first wave could be said to be people who read his work in the 30s to the 50s, uh, however encountered. So, you know, with reading The Hobbit, if they were kids back then, uh, you know, when The Lord of the Rings first gets published and gets an initial attention in the mid 50s. But it's, of course, very, very you know, light. And so people are like, oh, yeah, you wrote The Hobbit, that great kid story. Whoa, what's this? And things like that. You can call that the first wave. You've got the second wave being, again, when everything really explodes in the mid-60s over here in America, and, you know, the, you, everything sort of follows from there. You know, the songs started getting written, the first, you know, first concept albums appear with uh, directly referring to, that, to all that stuff. And then I see myself as a third wave because, I, as I mentioned, I was born in 71. He died in 73, so I never was consciously aware of him being alive. And it was very much sort of like, okay, things are starting to sink in. And to my mind, the Rankin-Bass and the Bakshi productions um, the brothers Hildebrandt and their illustrations of Tolkien, which became very famous. Um, the emergence of Dungeons and Dragons, this sort of idea that, uh, and the idea, especially of fantasy trilogies becoming a thing, like, you know, just emerging. Like, you know, when I started really getting a sense of the field, uh, more in the early eighties, it's like you go into the book and there are fantasy trilogies everywhere, you know, yep. just sort of their own dedicated section. And then, you know, what's been interesting and I freely admit this is kind of why I wanted you guys on uh, the podcast is because you're both rather younger than me. And so it's a much later sort of like, you know, context and sort of how you uh, start to engage Tolkien in different sort of ways. And uh, and so that's why, uh, you know, that change of perspective, because that period is now gone because now there are the movies. And now there are, you know, these other wider just things going out there, you know, whether it's uh, whether it just there's so much. And uh, with that in mind, uh, unless anyone had anything else to ask of me, uh, I was going to just turn it over. And Oriana, if you want to sort of share your thoughts and uh, experiences on Tolkien. Yeah. Well, J- Jared, you and I are like roughly the same age, I guess, because. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to me that we only had a couple of years, essentially, like a year or two of reading the books before the movies came out. Um like I I came to it at like it was like just before my 12th birthday I was starting at a new school in the fall um and summer reading was the hobbit and I loved it and saw this saw another book by the author on sale at I th- I I have this it, in my memory it's target that doesn't make a whole lot of sense Maybe they used to sell more books than they currently do. I don't really know. But I I begged for it, and some adult, I don't know if it was my grandmother or my parents, um, bought it for me. But, Ned, like you, it was not the Fellowship of the Ring. In my case, it was the Two Towers, and I was so confused. And it was, it was the cover... I've tweeted a picture of the cover, but it was like the '70s cover where, where it's Legolas and Gimli, and they—it looks like there is definitely something going on between the two. <gasps> of them. Yeah, that cover. Yes, oh God, sorry. <laughs> I know the one you mean. Yes, it looks, and but I so I started reading it, and I thought I was like, oh, which one is like? I thought it was like. Bilbo or um, Frodo and Sam, and I was like, which one is which? What is happening? And I, like, so I was very confused. And I also, this was like the same time Harry Potter came out. And initially, you know, Harry Potter was a little more my jam. But as, and it's not that Harry Potter doesn't have staying power necessarily, but the Tolkien's world, the, the 
Tolkien's world had a staying power that Ned, you discussed that, that it really only grew as I, I sort of delved deeper into the lore. And I started, you know, I read the Silmarillion when I was like 14 or 15 as a way of, and I'm, I'm just going to admit this as a way of like separating myself from the movie fans. Um, like it was, you know, I, I, I was very into it. Don't get me wrong, but it, I definitely was one of those awful children that was like, well, I'm a real fan and you're a fake movie fan. So I'm going to read this. And I, I, you know, I loved it. Um, but that was, I'm better now. <laughs> I think but, we all went through phases like that. Yeah. Right? You, you, yeah. You've, there's always a gatekeeper phase. Um, it's not flattering, but it's, just, you know, you, you change and grow. And that was, you know, one of the things that I did really appreciate about it was the, I call it simplicity, but it's not really simplicity. It's it's a moral clarity that I, it was so unlike the world I knew because, you know, late nineties, we've got the Clinton, everything happening, 9-11 happening, you know, so the Lord of the Rings, it was, it was, it was a very sort of black and white type world, but what's interesting is is what I love about the Silmarillion is is the complexity. That's all there. It's it's there's a humanity in those stories that I think a lot of people, including my younger self, tend to overlook because the way it's written can seem a little dry. But you've got you know you've got this one character, Fionor, who is this sort of tortured artist archetype who like screws up the entire world because his dad got remarried and he had to like share his attention. That's, that's like basically what happens. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's, it's the staying power. Like I, I, you know, I have very casually dropped into the news segment that I, I made kind of a pilgrimage to, uh, Finland last week. And I mostly stayed in Helsinki, but I, I made a special trip to the center of Finland, um, because I had, I had done a project a couple years ago where I went to the geographic center of each state in America and I was like, oh, let's do a fun, you know, let's franchise this, I guess. Um, but it turns out that the town closest to the center of Finland was also where Elias Lundrot, uh, the guy who put together the Finnish national epic Kalevala was based as a physician and Kalevala for the uninitiated was a huge influence on Tolkien, um, particularly the stories that are found in the Silmarillion. Um, and so it's this, this, it's almost as though the universe is coming, it all comes together. And that's a very special thing for me. And as I said, now I have a copy of the Hobbit in Finnish, uh, which is very cool. It's, I'm only, I've only gotten, I've had it for, you know, many days. I've had it for like five days and read six pages. It's hard. I'm still learning. More than I know of Finnish. So. <laughs> um, but um, I guess I had uh, sort of a, a couple of just thoughts on, on your uh, stories there, Ariana. So yeah, that, as you mentioned, the time of, you know, the late, late nineties into the early two thousands, uh, when the movies come out and when things, the world goes to hell all around us in a handbasket. Um, I mean, there I was, I would have been, uh, 29, no 30. I would have been 30 when the, uh, when the first of, uh, Peter Jackson's adaptations came out. And I remember something I remember at the time was rereading, uh, the, uh, 
was rereading Lord of the Rings, kind of what I was seeing at the time. It wasn't going to be the last time I was going to reread it, but it was sort of like, okay, the movie's coming out. First movie's come out in a couple of months here. I need to reread the books one more time before the movie takes over my brain for a while. Which, and, and the movies did for about a decade in terms of I was sort of more focused on them specifically than anything else. Um, but, uh, but I remember, and this would have been after 9-11 hit, and the exchange that uh, Frodo and Gandalf had where Frodo uh, expresses that, uh, you know, what a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum and wants yeah. uh, mm-hmm. pity and mercy stays. And that whole meditation on, you know, what is, it, is it just to take someone, some person's life? And I just remember thinking, oh man, the world needs that right now. And it being in the movie, however transposed from one setting to another, the fact that it was there, I still think is one of those just crucially good moments in time. Like, okay, we needed the sanity of voice. <laughs> we, we we needed Absolutely. the sentiment in there. It was it was so strong. And I, how did you react to that when 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 you saw that in the film? I that it th- like that'll stay with me to the end of my days. I'm pretty sure. And actually, I, I actually really that was also a phase where I was very like the book is better than the movie always, which is dumb and bad. And you know, it's always embarrassing to look back on that. But I think even at the time, I I looked at it and was like. Yeah, this is a better place to have that conversation that that actually makes sense to have it in in this in the abyss. You're literally in the abyss uh, and you have this conversation about, you know, death and pity and justice. And uh, yeah, put it on my tombstone. (laughs) That scene actually sort of sort of rewrote my memory of the conversation entirely. So it wasn't until I was rereading the books like. Uh, last year or something that I realized, no, actually that conversation, it's like in the second chapter of the book or something, right? It's not even, they're just sitting at a fireside and like, yeah, maybe don't kill people. And that's like, that's it. Yep. Uh, it was, it was surprising actually to, I don't know, think about <laughs> how much the movies had just kind of casually taken over my, my brain. And I was yeah, mm. it's really indelible. Yeah. Yeah. For for good or for ill, for sure, and yeah, I, I we don't don't worry, listeners out there, we will be grappling with the films one way or another. Yeah, <laughs> inevitably it will happen. Don't worry. So, uh, many more thoughts there. One other quick thing then for Oriana, just the thought. So, uh, by describing, and I've certainly been following along your preparation for visiting to Finland and uh, learning Finnish and all that. So, uh, do, I can't say I have a deep affinity for languages. I mean, I try. But at best, I have a rough handle on uh, on basic conversational Spanish, and that's a really about it. So is our language is sort of a strong thing for you? Because it sounds like that really is a resonant point, uh, whether in Tolkien or out of it. So Yes, languages have always... Well, what's really bizarre is... So my mom is from Venezuela, and for the first, like, four years of my life, uh, I spoke English and Spanish. And then when I was four, I decided I didn't want to speak Spanish anymore. And to the again, to, till my dying day, I'll be like... What, what's wrong with you, child? Like, what are you doing? That was bad. Because uh, I then had to, like, relearn it in middle and high school. Um, but And, like, I liked Spanish. Don't get me wrong. Spanish is a beautiful language. But there was always, in ninth grade, uh, we read Beowulf. And uh, I immediately, I was like, oh, oh, this is where, like, all of this, like, Tolkien just stole a bunch of this stuff. Because we had the Seamus Haney... Um, 
uh, Beowulf that has the old English on one side and the and um, modern English on the other. And uh, I was like, oh, oh, whoa, okay. And that was sort of my first like, whoa, this is like really interesting. Um, and I started getting really into languages and reading the Silmarillion and, and certain other uh, pieces about like, oh, Tolkien was really into Finnish. Oh. And so I started, I actually like, you know, went to borders. I think it was like 16 or something. Cause I, I finally had a car or like I had access to a car and I bought the Kalevala and, uh, started reading it and like, you know, it was not at a point where I could learn Finnish. Um, but it was something that was always in the back of my mind. Um, because I, it, I, if it it was, like, I, I trust Tolkien in matters of languages, and if he says it's a beautiful language, then he's probably, you know, he's probably right. Uh, and so, you know, years later, it was like six years ago, six, seven years ago, I, I bought a couple of Finnish textbooks, uh, and then life got busy. And then earlier this year, I was like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to really start learning this language. I'm going to go there, um, and just, you know, kind of soak it in. I ended up going to, uh, a cafe in Helsinki that is, it's a Karelian bakery, uh, and they have, um, murals on the wall of Kalevala. Uh, and it was just this, it, it fits really well with the Tolkien, cause you know, Tolkien famously said, you know, he was grieved by the poverty of his own, um, of, of English in terms of mythology. It had no stories that were bound up with its language. And Finland was that way in that, you know, it had been subjugated by the Swedes and Finnish was, you know, a second class language, you know, only the Hicks spoke it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there was still, there was still this vibrant oral tradition, uh, of, of oral poetry. And so, you know, this one guy, Elias Lindroth, uh, took it all down, went around and collected all these stories and fashioned not only this epic, but sort of the grammar, you know, set down the rules for modern Finnish, Finnish grammar, uh, as well. And I can like, that's such a beautiful thing to me. And I see why Tolkien was so enamored, not with, not just with the stories, but with the language itself. Um, it was really cool. Tell me, tell me more, Jared, about, about your experiences. I want to hear. They're actually, oh, so the more you were talking, the more I was like, actually, there's a lot of weird uh, similarities. I've got like a, a bizarro mirror universe version of, of all of this. Um, so my first exposure to Lord of the Rings, or Tolkien in general, was my mom reading The Hobbit to us. Um, I was probably about uh, 11 or 12. Um, uh, yeah, around there somewhere. Um, and then she went right from there to the Lord of the Rings. Um, and we ended up getting from the library, the same edition of two towers with the, like the weird bullet Legolas and like the weird vibes. Shippy Legolas and Glim and Gimli. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so went through all that. Um, Loved it. I was the only... She didn't read the appendices to us, because why would you do that to children? Oh, man. Um, but, so I, I think I was the only one of my siblings who actually like picked up the book and read the back of it. 
Um, and then we were in a, like a Goodwill or something. I forget what. And there was this old paperback copy of the Silmarillion. And I was like, mom, please buy this for me. <laughs> Spend a dollar that you honestly probably don't have. <laughs> um, and I still have that copy. Um, I don't read it because it's falling apart, but I've That's still got so it. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but so that was all happening. And at the same time, like, like you said, Oriana, um, Harry Potter was kind of becoming a big thing in America. Um, but I wasn't allowed to read it because my parents are very conservative Christians. So um, Harry Potter was forbidden. A lot of fantasy was forbidden. But we could read Lord of the Rings. And I think part of that, honestly, was because my mom read it when she was young. Um, so she didn't see a problem with it. Grandfathered in. Like... Grandfathered I'm a legacy <laughs> fan, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was like, it was approved. It was safe. We could read it. That was all great. Um, so, like, we had other, we couldn't do Harry Potter. Um, and other, oh, we even knew people who, like, wouldn't read Lord of the Rings because there was magic in it. And we're like, but Tolkien was Christian. It's safe. And, like, no, you're still going to corrupt you. Like, it was, yeah, it's weird to think of Tolkien being controversial within conservative communities, but he was. It, it's such, a, like, a small, weird thing to argue about. But, yeah. So, the Silmarillion, and it was, like, kind of, life-changing in a way like i don't know um i actually around the same time was when i started actually writing um and i was like oh everything has to be um a trilogy right so i'll write a trilogy fantasy epic and then everything has to have its own language i guess yeah so i'll do that mm. i'll wow. make up like five different languages for this thing um <laughs> I'm and yeah <laughs> Uh, and it, I sometimes like I'll tweet pictures of notes that I'm taking on something that I'm currently working on, and it'll be in like a script that's not English, and that's actually something that I invented for this thing I wrote when I was twelve under the influence of Tolkien. Um, I still use it because nobody can read it but me. Um, but at the same time that all this was happening and reading the safe fantasy and all that, I started getting interested in language. Um, I went through like six months where I wanted to be a linguist, which hasn't panned out. Um, so um, I got uh, a used Finnish book, like Teach Yourself Finnish, and ended up learning a little bit, most of which I've forgotten at this point. Um, read, the, read the Kalevala, got it from the library, was kind of freaked out by it. It is so weird. Oh my so god. <laughs> and this was an illustrated version and it had like kind of weird illustrations. So like um the story where uh Lemminkainen um where his mom resurrects him, like she sews him back together or something. That was illustrated like there's this just naked corpse in this book and it's oh yeah, and I was still fairly young at that point. I wasn't cuz I went right from the Silmarillion to the Kalevala. So I probably was about 13 or 14. And it's like, this is brutal. Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, that's that's not PG thirteen material necessarily. Yeah, <laughs> not no, not at all. Um, so yeah, a lot of the same experiences. That's so um, interesting. Yeah. 
I haven't gotten back to learning Finnish. I would like to. Well, if you do, can, if we can be Finnish practice buddies, because boy, do I need the help. <laughs> the only, oh, the only thing I remember is like that it, the third person pronoun is gender neutral, yes! and then like the verb to take, because that was the example they used for conjugation. Yeah, I think that's about all I remember. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty solid foundation, actually. That's pretty good. I love it. Did you, uh, was the Chronicles of Narnia also, like, approved and safe? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, that was even more approved and safe because it's explicitly Christian allegory. (laughs) So, yeah, we could read that, no problem. I do think it's interesting that you gravitated more. It's completely understandable. I love the Chronicles of Narnia, but it is completely understandable that you gravitated more towards the the deeper lore than the than the Chronicles of Narnia of it all. Yeah, there's a lot more. Yes. Um, to Tolkien than there is to C.S. Lewis. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, w- I would I would throw in an agree there. Uh, I still I'm I still find it remarkable that we ended up having Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as reading in my I should note public school class a third grade. Yeah, and all that. And this is in California in the in the late seventies. You got me. <laughs> but at the same time, I will note this: I didn't draw the connection at all at the time. <laughs> <I just> thought, <laughs> well, right, because okay. you're like eight. You know, you're like, oh, okay. Allegory, allegory is like I don't know. You, you're like ten, eleven, probably. Yeah, maybe. So it just, yeah, no, I, I, I have my own thoughts. I there, there's, there's, there's specific things I certainly love about Narnia, but interestingly enough, I think it's where he gets to those moments of uh, let's say the word again, sub creation depth that uh, that uh, that that is more Tolkien's, you know, sort of focus. And that's why the third and fourth books kind of appeal to me the most. But this sidetracks forever and all that. <laughs> we could have a whole episode about Lewis and Tolkien. Yeah, probably sure at some point. But uh, Jared, if you want to say a little bit more, because you had mentioned this earlier, just about uh, what where his appeal lies for you, because I thought your thoughts on this were really interesting. Um, it's just uh, so huge and at the same time um meticulous um there are always uh corners that you haven't seen around and um as you grow up the books do change in meaning especially if um if you read them when you're little and you come from uh, a place where um your moral worldview and the worldview of those around you is extremely black and white um and as you grow up and grow out of this uh the books uh change um i think they're not they're not as black and white as um a lot of their detractors like to say um there's a lot more gray there than he's given credit for i think and you start to recognize that i mean for me it's kind of a a very long process of maturing that helped me re like reevaluate and appreciate the books even more um, just as like moral works. I mean, if you're talking about moral clarity, that's definitely there. Um, but it's um, more complicated and probably more dangerous than my parents would have liked. <laughs> they just didn't see it. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's just, um, 
it gets more complicated. It gets more weird as you get older and reread it and reread it and bring new experiences to it. And it just, yeah, it's, it's at once uh, simple and entirely baffling mm-hmm. just as a work of art. I don't know. It's yeah. yeah I love my, it. I love the books. <laughs> yeah. My, my thoughts. Obviously. On that. Yeah. Yeah. My thought, my thoughts on that are, are shaped by the fact, uh, and just, or just, quick observation here is just that uh you know the publication the history of middle earth books that christopher tolkien has worked on over all those years i'm putting it out there just whereas lord of the rings in its monumentalism and relative self-containedness if you include the appendices yes you're you're getting all the depths of echoes of things that are not explained but there's so much going on in there it is presented in a uniform fashion like here is the story whereas the history of middle earth stuff just shows you how frayed all the edges are and and that it's like literally decades of meditating on it, um, of getting back to it, of something that was part of a wider life, too. It's one of those things that the older I get, the more I'm like, wow, you know, if I had been working on something for that long and to a degree, Jared, it sounds like with your languages that you came up with that you're still working on it. There's a there's a certain echo of that uh, for you, I guess. Uh, I'm not going to put yeah. words in your mouth, though, but if you do you see continuities there? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's stuff that I um, that I started working on when I was a teenager, and still very much um, under the influence of Tolkien. That I'm still uh, working and reworking, and I've put up like short stories on uh, my Patreon, um, not to plug it or anything, but like that's where they are. Um, <laughs> um, that are set in this world that I came up with when I was 16, and it's not fantasy, but um, they're there, and I've. Uh, come back and reevaluated that every few years and looked at um, how it how it's changed for me as I've changed and how I want to redo it and make it something that to me is more appealing or more well thought out or just cooler, mm. <laughs> just just cooler. Yeah. Are you still Are you still doing like Are you still conlanging? Um. Yeah, yeah, yes. That's so um, cool. Not, uh, not to the extent where I would call myself a con langer, because um, there are definite. I, I still. It's been years since I actually opened a linguistics book of any kind. There's a lot that I don't know, so it's just uh, intermittently working on this one. <laughs> That's great for this this one world. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's really fascinating. So um, we could delve in further, but uh, just, you know, listeners may know we're recording this with a certain time duress <laughs> since uh, there are things people have to do here. So but we we have we have a few minutes more. We have a few things to talk about. I'll wrap up uh, this section. Just one thing I forgot to mention the discussion that I was sort of casually mentioning way earlier uh, in the episode uh, when I said I'd been to Oxford before. Uh, one important step of my fandom was when I went in 1992 to Oxford, my first visit to England. I've been a number of times since. Uh, this was for the big Tolkien centenary celebration. This was uh, the uh, 100th anniversary of his birth. It was a, uh, a joint effort held at Kebbles College, Oxford, uh, that was put on over a week uh, by a combination of the Mythopoeic Society here in the States and uh, the Tolkien Society in England. Uh, really enjoyable time. I had a chance to meet... Uh, Priscilla Tolkien. I saw Christopher Tolkien do a reading, uh, met Rainer Unwin. There's much more I could say. The one thing I will say is that also is the time that uh, that uh, I, along with a number of people, we went and visited the gravesite 
of uh, of uh, Tolkien and uh, and his wife Edith. And there is a photo of me uh, that I have, and uh, I will provide a link for it in the show notes. All I can say is you can kind of tell it's me because not merely because of my hair, but I really look like I should be in the cure or something like that because my <laughs> hair was and just really out there. And I had no product or anything like that. Just one of those things like, wow, uh, gosh, when I was 21, I had a lot of hair there. <laughs> I mean, I, I still wear it long, but oh, my goodness. So anyway, I'll, I'll throw that in for everyone's amusement. So... But uh, we do need to uh, move moving along here uh, as we wrap up and uh, get ready to uh, send it out. So, as mentioned beforehand, the idea is that uh, we rotate uh, discussion topics episode to episode. And the whole idea is that we don't know what the next person's going to pick until they tell us right here in the recording. So, you're this is not us, this is not fake surprise. I have no idea what's next, but it is Oriana's chance to set the discussion for the uh, next episode. Oriana, what have you picked? unlimited power that's not the i feel unlimited power um yeah not to be a downer but actually i think death we're we're going to talk about death and how um, yes. it, it mm. influenced tolkien's entire universe uh the ways in which he was attempting or the ways in which i think he was attempting to grapple with mortality um in 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 his own way through his work uh and you can like you guys can take that however take that prompt however you want uh i already know uh what i'm gonna talk about but yeah death <laughs> that's a big one yeah i know but there's like a, there's so much here like <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah i mean just you know the thing about the personification figure of course uh you know and there's mm -hmm. so much more but uh yeah no that's that's where you're gonna hear me you're gonna hear me like yelling about tour um a lot so get ready for that listeners it's very exciting no i'm so excited for this yes yes no, that's great. I, I, I wouldn't even want to do that one. That is fantastic. That'll be that, that gives me a month to think about all sorts of things. That'll be great. <laughs> contemplate your own mortality too. Fun, fun, fun. <laughs> Nonstop fun on by the bywater. One other thing uh, before we uh, wrap up is just something that uh, I realized I had forgotten to mention uh, to our Anna and Jared until the other day. So I want to make sure you folks know about it. We mentioned Marquette University earlier. Uh, besides holding on to the uh, and hosting the uh, Tolkien manuscripts of uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, they have since developed a fairly extensive just general collection about Tolkien, as unsurprisingly, as, since it's such a key part of their holdings. And uh, what they are now currently engaged on is a wonderful project. I'll be participating in this myself uh, here in a couple of weekends. You have to schedule in advance. It's called the J.R.R. Tolkien Fandom Oral History Collection. And I'm reading from the webpage here. If you Google J.R.R. Tolkien Fandom Oral History Collection and Marquette, you should be able to be taken right to the page. And to describe what's on the page here, um, in our effort to document Tolkien fandom, the Department of Special Collections at Marquette's Rayner uh, Memorial Library is building a collection of brief testimonials from Tolkien fans. The goal is 6,000 audio interviews, one for each of the writers of Rohan that Theoden mustered and led to the aid of Gondor. Each fan is given up to three minutes to respond to the following three questions. When did you first encounter the works of J.R.R. Tolkien? Why are you a Tolkien fan? And what has he meant to you? Three questions in three minutes, as they say. Um, the idea is they'd love to get people who are there uh, who are able to stop by directly. However, they are also doing scheduling to do uh, chats online. And uh, to do that, and as I mentioned, I'll be doing mine in a couple of weeks here. Uh, basically, go to the scheduling page that's linked from there. 
And they sort of schedule in waves, like they set it up for a month and then a time happens and they open up some more dates and time. So you kind of just got to catch it as you can. But uh, if you're listening and you consider yourself a fan and uh, hey, try this out because it sounds like a really, really enjoyable idea to get a wide range of reactions. And uh, and I think it'll just be fascinating. And have you guys looked to schedule something yourself? Is anything available yet? Uh, I haven't actually looked at it yet, <laughs> but I will. I, I will. haven't looked at scheduling. Uh, we're still, we're still, we're both still jet lagged. We're both. That's we're both true. Still, yes. Uh... Yeah. And I think you sent the link while I was still in France. So <laughs> there was no way I was doing anything right then. I, I freely understand this. Uh, I, you know, my UK trip that I did in November took me a while to get back and. And just, yeah, no, and, and my march, I'm, I'm not going to go into the details, but my march in general, even though I wasn't going anywhere, that was a full time. So I fully understand sort of like re-entering the mindset because it can be very busy. Um, so, but in any event, just wanted to pass that to folks out there. So finally, and this is, you know, speaking for all of us, although I'll chime in, uh, thank you very much for listening to this. It's our first episode. Um, I think it's gone very well here. It's uh, just a chance. I've learned many new things now already from uh, both of you, and uh, hopefully that shared back in turn. Uh, it's, uh, been a real treat. Um, we will be back with a new episode in late May. The goal is to try and record these monthly as mentioned. Uh, so, uh, we will be aiming for that general schedule. And, uh, beyond that, uh, as I said, keeping an eye on the time, we should probably just wrap up here, but any last thoughts, uh, from either of you two before we, uh, wrap up? It's so nice to have you guys. No, thanks. That's really nice. I feel very connected. Feel understood. And uh, welcome. Yes. Completely agreed <laughs> and all that. So it's it's nice to be able to drop fairly, uh, you know, as as I said earlier, we wouldn't we wouldn't consider ourselves like, you know, hyper, hyper steeped in everything and everything. But but and anything about uh, Middle Earth. But it's nice to be able to drop fairly obscure references and know that the other people know what we're yep. talking about. And I hope you, if you're listening out there, if you're going like, man, what is all this stuff? Well, think of it as a chance to learn by osmosis. And if any of it's intriguing, hey, the reading is there. So, uh, and all that. So, uh, and uh, so it'll be, so it'll be death next time, as you had done so memorably said, and Aymer <laughs> in, in Lord of the Rings. Uh, there will be more coming along. Uh, look for our show notes with various links and things uh, on the By the Bywater page where this episode is posted. You'll get more information from us about uh, where we're at, how to contact us, how to follow us on Twitter in our closing. So we'll just wrap up here. And until next month, we'll talk to you then. Goodbye, all. Thanks again for listening to this episode of By the Bywater. Please subscribe and rate us via your favorite podcast listening options. Episodes and show notes are at megaphonic.fm slash by the bywater, all one word. You can also message us through here. Email us at bythebywater at megaphonic.fm or follow us on Twitter at bythebywater. You can also follow us individually on Twitter and ask questions there. I'm at Vandroid Helsing. I'm at Schwinter, S-C-H-W-I-N-D-T-E-R. And I'm Ned Raggett, two G's, two T's. By the Bywater is a proud member of Megaphonic Podcast Network. Find all our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm. We hope you join us again next time. Until then, Namariye. Namariye.